You're listening to Mockingbird. This recording was made at the 8th Annual Mockingbird Conference, held at Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. Well, it's uh, my pleasure and privilege to be uh, to introduce to you today our first speaker, the Reverend Sarah Condon. Uh, Sarah Condon is a, a clergy on staff at uh, St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas, the largest Episcopal church in the country. And um, I met Sarah nine years ago through her wonderful husband, Josh, who was at that time a new clergyman here in the Diocese of New York, and uh, our families became fast friends. She is a wonderful speaker with profound insights and brings a southern charm to the whole thing. Uh, But what makes Sarah more wonderful is that she is a wife to a wonderful husband, Josh, a fabulous mother to two children, Neil and Annie. Annie's also known on the internet as Biscuit, and um, it is just a pleasure to have her here. So, Sarah Condon. Is that good? Can y'all hear me? Okay, super. All right. So, I'm gonna move the pan. Can we start with a prayer, please? Gracious God, thank you for finding us. Thank you for drawing us to your love. Thank you for giving us all clean slates. Lord, forgive the one who teaches this morning, for her sins are many. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three years ago, I was sitting in the pews that you were sitting in, um, right there on the second row. I tried to sit as close to it as I could possibly this morning for my first Mockingbird conference. And what I heard um, has unhinged my life, but it did not happen overnight. It happened very gradually. And it's still happening, which is why I keep coming back. So I come to you today with a kind of testimony of warning. Um, I want you to know what you're getting yourselves into or what you're already in at this point, so it's too late. My name is Sarah Condon. I'm wife to Josh, mother to Annie and Neil, priest at St. Martin's, and I'm a sinner saved by grace, given a clean slate in Christ. So I fancy myself to be a practical person, so I've made a list of pros and cons about having a clean slate. So that's where we're going to start this morning. For the sake of being sunny, which I always am, we're going to start with the pros. I'm kidding, I'm never sunny. Okay. I need the slide up. There we go. There we go. Oh, we'll start with the pros. Okay. Pros, God's grace, an ever-redeemable second chance. We are the prodigal son. We are the woman at the well. When we read St. Paul and he talks about sinners redeemed, we know it is us that he speaks about. We know that the cross cast a long shadow of rescue and redemption over our lives, even at the worst moments, maybe especially at the worst moments. God has saved me because God has saved me from myself. And by the grace of God, I have been given a clean slate. I have done nothing. Don't get too excited. We haven't gotten to the cons list yet. Let's see if it'll work. 
we lose everything. That is to say, I've lost everything that I thought would save me. If we claim that grace is unearned, as St. Paul tells us in Romans 3, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Sorry, y'all, this is taking a while. And justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, then what do we do now? What is our part to play? We die. Romans 6 tells us you must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ. And I think we have to die because we are saved in our deaths. Because I think God has to pry our sin from our cold, dead hands. I don't think we would give it up otherwise. So that's our part in the clean slate equation. We die. And guess what? You're here. Welcome to being dead and welcome to your clean slate. I believe that for me, being given a clean slate has been incredibly scary. Everything that I have held fast to has been seen in a different light. All of our crutches, our blames, our old hurts, they start to be called into question. Everything we are proud of or don't even know that we worship starts to surface to the top. So for me, that could be things like a gym membership, or my paleo diet, or toddler breastfeeding, or a ridiculous work ethic. All of these things begin to start to feel empty. Even our religiosity, most especially our religiosity, starts to feel maybe false. Did you guys see the Christian Girl Instagram video? It spoke to the very worst parts of me. And when I showed this to my mother, Are you a she didn't think it was real. Are you a Christian taking photos of her devotions? Do you spend hours framing the perfect picture without the payoff of people noticing how spiritual you are on the internet? Introducing Christian Girl Instagram. 101 tips and tricks to get more likes on your devotional photos. Hi, I'm John Christ with Christian Girl Instagram. Do you struggle to get likes on those devotional Instagram photos? Hashtag the struggle is real. From the best-selling author of shameless workout selfies comes Christian Girl Instagram. I would always get totes stressed out trying to decide which Bible verse to show. <laughs> Not anymore. Okay, you're always going to want to stay away from common verses like Jeremiah 29:11 or John 3:16. No matter what verse you choose, you always want to make sure you highlight multiple verses with multiple colors. Because after all, what's the point of having devotions if no one knows about it? I used to spend five minutes reading the Bible, and then like 30 minutes trying to figure out a hashtag. Then I found Christian Girl Instagram. My book includes over a thousand hashtag suggestions like Coffee with Colossians, Bliss, Serenity, Much Needed, and of course, hashtag blessed. Buy Christian Girl Instagram today and we'll include our 31-piece package of options to put in the background of your photo. Things like a candle, a precious moments doll, a subscription to Relevant Magazine, kale chips, and of course, a coffee cup with a Bible verse on it. Thanks to inspiration from Christian Girl Instagram, I took down my Marilyn Monroe poster and replaced it with footprints in the sand. So clear off what's really on your desk and replace it with new products from Christian Girl Instagram. So it tells us, clear off what's really on your desk and replace it with new products from Christian Girl Instagram. Let's see, there we go. <clears throat> I love this morality-based kind of cleanliness, 
And I don't mean I love it, but I really hate it. I mean I love it. It's kind of exotic for me still. So my scripture study often happens at our kitchen table where there are open baby food jars, a poorly used day planner, um, papers I should have signed the day before, and like stale Fritos, because we live in Texas. Um, It is an altar to my best intentions. When I Instagram a photo of my devotions, which I do, you will not see any of that crap in the background. It's like part of me is saying, I make my own clean slate, damn it, even when I'm doing devotions for Jesus. (laughs) Participating in this kind of morality-based clean slate makes me look nice, which I'm not, and like I have my life together, which I do not. If I can just clear off my desk and look righteous all on my own, then it's like the uncleanest clean I can be. Act like your life isn't a mess, and then show everyone your false morality circus with a Valencia filter. We do desire to be clean. We just don't want to have to go to God for it. Because God, in all of his mercy, offers us sweet and terrifying relief. Now this is kind of wacky, but just go with me here. So sometimes I think grace is like this office building that we show up for work for like every morning. We come through the door, we're like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, determined to find gainful employment. We want to sit in like a beige-colored office cubicle and run the numbers for our salvation. And so we walk into the morning, we walk into the office every morning for work, but we're greeted by the security guard and he always stops us at the elevator. And he just says, here's your paycheck again. He won't even let us get on the elevator go up to our floor. And we're all, no way, dude. I came here to work. And he's all, look, we do this every single day. You show up here. I tell you you don't work here. You never did. You'll never get hired. You would be terrible at this job. When are you going to get the message? Now go sit outside and hold up this sign. It says, she's dead. We gave her a clean slate. She still wants to work for it. Anxious zombie on the loose. As strange as it sounds, I think most of us are troubled by a clean slate because we don't want to lose the worst parts of ourselves. My pain and my struggle, my anger, they are me. My manic desire to appear like the most devoted Christian and wife and mother and priest on the planet My need to constantly showboat how cute my babies are. They are very cute, but I'm always showboating it. You know, there's a big part of me that says, you can keep your clean slate, God. I prefer to go unexamined, unexcused, undisclosed, unclean. After all, what am I if not an irate brunette who just wants to be a yoga teacher? I think people all have identities that they long to be. The world tells us if we can just strive to be these people, then we can make our own way. We can earn our clean slate. Based on my love of the Christian Girl Instagram video, my longed-for identity is to be a petite, blonde Christian moralist. (laughs) Good luck, right? Um, Maybe yours is different. Maybe you want to be the world's greatest dad always doling out very helpful advice, or the hipster with the worst, most unattractive vintage glasses, 
Or maybe you want to be the eldest, most responsible, most put-upon daughter. Or maybe none of these float your boat. Maybe none of these are your thing. Maybe your hope for identity is to be the greatest pastor to have run Christendom. I don't know what haunts you, but Jesus does. So I want to take a quick moment here and look at John chapter 12. So this is when Mary shows up and anoints Jesus' feet with really costly oil perfume. And Judas Iscariot yells at her, right? He says, we could have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor. This is a clear clean slate moment in scripture, okay? Of course, giving the money to the poor is what they should have done. But falling at the feet of Jesus, no matter the cost, holding up the white flag of control, that is clean slate crazy. The corrective legalistic voice of Judas Iscariot in John 12 reminds me of all those voices that tell us we can't possibly get a clean slate. Those voices that tell us Jesus will never make us dead to sin and alive in him. Those voices that tell us we've messed everything up and we are wholly unredeemable. You could have gone to graduate school and instead you got pregnant. Too bad you can't send your kids to private schools. They'll probably hate you and be miserable failures. Wish you could get that promotion. I bet you're not working hard enough. You shouldn't have wasted that oil, Mary. Obviously, a clean slate is not in your cards. But what does John chapter 12 tell us? What does Jesus say in Mary's defense? This is a crucial point. What does Jesus say about this woman who has shown up to anoint him, to ultimately prepare him for death on the cross, to the woman who has wasted the costly oiled perfume. It's right there at verse seven. Jesus turns to Judas Iscariot and he says, leave her alone. And that's it. That's a clean slate moment. Jesus comes to us drenched in all his mercy and grace. And he tells the world, to leave us alone. We sit at the feet of our Lord and we say, here, I give up. Here is all my control. Here is my best life now. Here is that super cool person I am at cocktail parties. Here is everything that I think will save me. And what happens? What do the gospel say? Jesus looks to the world and says, leave them alone. They have been given a clean slate. They belong to me. They are alive in me. I've come to save them from themselves. I've come to save him from the need to be strong or her from the need to be thinner or to be smarter or to be a better mother. All I can say is that something happens with a clean slate. Something happens in our dying that I can hardly describe. Our cold, dead hands unfurl from the grip that we thought we had on ourselves. We are found innocent in light of sacrifice, hopeful in light of crucified despair. I wish I could make you a promise about what a clean slate looks like in your life, but this isn't a name it or claim it situation, right? This is a theology that doesn't promise those results. 
It is a theology of reckless openness. It is a theology of definite death and risky living. If your experience has been anything like mine, then realizing you have been given a clean slate, that we have all been given clean slates, may make you go a little nuts. I have found myself feeling this strange emotion that I can only describe as being like livid with immobilizing gratefulness. You may end up being driven right into the therapist's office, into your pastor's office, into confession. Like me, you may end up in all three. In my life, having a clean slate has meant that all my relationships have been turned upside down in the best and worst possible ways. And I'll be honest, that has been really difficult because I've started to lose the ways I used to function, defense mechanisms I could call upon. This whole clean slate business has me thinking, I don't know if I can haul this old crap around anymore. So this is the testimony of warning portion of the talk. For me, having a clean slate has meant that my marriage has been re-examined. I can no longer fantasize about killing my husband when he shrinks my clothes in the dryer. I can fantasize about it, and I totally do fantasize about it, but then I remember that I've been given a clean slate. God has rescued me from myself, and so my anger isn't as enticing as it used to be. The way that I mother is different, I can't get mad at my kids anymore for being kids. It just doesn't feel as good as it used to because I've been given a clean slate. And so my kids are annoying and smelly and demanding and not at all what I expected when I decided I wanted to have children. But I can't really get angry at them for that because my self-perceived righteous indignation has simply lost its charm. Even old hurts have been called into question. Teachers who didn't teach the way I thought that they should have. My parents who didn't parent the way that I thought they should have. Old friends who I felt had done me wrong. All of this is just an, an, a narrative for me of self-justification, of control. Hurt them before they hurt you. And there it is again, this ridiculous clean slate filled with grace healing me before I even ask for it, knocking the breath out of me before I can inhale. Now, if you'll allow it, I'm going to show a scene from a Jim Carrey movie, but I want the record to show that I hate Jim Carrey movies, but this one's worth it. It's from Liar Liar, and Jim Carrey plays the conniving, disgusting person that we all actually are on the inside. So Carrey's character lies about everything, like that's his M.O., but his son makes a birthday wish, his young son does, that his father wouldn't be able to lie for 24 hours. Heads up, there's some mildly 1997 cursing. And your mother called. Are you still on vacation? No. Then you're here? Yes. Thank you for clearing that up, sir. And your ex-wife called. She wants to know when you're coming to pick up your son. Oh, I'm such a shit. Hello? Audrey? Fletcher. Hi, are you still picking Max up from school today? Here's the thing, I really can't. I had a case I was certain we could settle and it didn't and I have to go to court this afternoon. Right. It's true, I really want to see Max today. How about that? I really do. 
Uh-huh, but things just keep coming up at the last minute, right? Yes, but this time it's different. I see. And how is that? Now I'm telling the truth. And last night you weren't. No. Well, what were you doing? Having sex. Well, I hope that it was with someone very special. No, see, that's a thing. I don't even like her, but she's a partner, and I thought I could help my career by making her squeal. Oh. What's wrong with me? I'm getting what I deserve. I'm reaping what I sow. I'm... So here's what I love about this clip. Being given a clean slate is absolutely that alarming for me. I find myself apologizing to people I could once dismiss, loving people I used to think were a waste of time, and realizing, after all these years, that when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that I'm not actually talking about everyone else in the room, but I'm talking about me. But this isn't about you feeling bad because God doesn't even really let you keep that. Ooh, there we go. As the wonderful Robert Farrar Capon once prayed, Lord, please restore us to the comfort of merit and demerit. Show us that there is at least something we can do. Tell us that at the end of the day, there will be at least one redeeming card of our very own. Lord, if it is not too much to ask, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, do not preach grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. I know that I'm among the dying because when I wake up in the morning, it occurs to me that despite my grumbly attitude and morning breath, I am somehow still given a clean slate in Christ. I am somehow by the grace of God, dead to sin and alive in Christ. God is prying me from my cold, dead hands. And it is hard and it is wonderful, painful and necessary it's almost more than I can stand. Dead to sin and alive in Christ. So I think that if we want to know what it means to die, then we need to start listening to the dead. And I want to end today by doing just that. So I want to end today by talking about Dr. Paul Kalanithi. He was a neurosurgeon. He was 37 years old, and he died this past March. He had really, really aggressive lung cancer. Towards the end of his life, he wrote a tremendous amount about death. But it is his words about his daughter, Katie, that have taught me something about having a clean slate. Since Katie's birth, my time with her has had a, a very peculiar and free nature. In all probability, I won't live long enough for her to remember me or certainly not have any clear memory of me. And so, you know, the time is just is what it is, which is fun because she's a really good baby. 
There is a disjunction in time between how I perceive time and how I perceive my daughter Katie's time because she's in this rapid phase of development, whereas my sense of time is very static. And so there is kind of a inherent tension between those things, which, you know, sometimes when I'm reading a baby book or someone remarks, kids grow up so quickly, there's kind of a pang because I'm not gonna see most likely that growing up happen. And the faster Katie grows up, the, the faster I'm not there. same time, every day is an exciting, rewarding, meaningful time to spend with her. Paul said of his daughter, my time with her has had a very peculiar and free nature. It just is what it is, which is fun because she's a really good baby. Dr. Kalanithi also wrote a piece for Stanford Medical called, Before I Go. In the final paragraph, he addresses his infant daughter, Katie, directly. So this is what he tells her. He said, the message is simple. When you come to one of the many moments in life when you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time right now, that is an enormous thing. So the internet is flush with videos about people who are dying, but I went with this short clip from Dr. Kalanithi, and here's why. He missed all the marks of what he should have done. Everything we would expect him to do, he failed gloriously at doing. He doesn't tell people that they should be more religious, even though he obviously is. He doesn't spend time talking about how reassured he is by the way he will spend his afterlife or plead with people on his way out that they need to know their personal Lord and Savior. And from a fatherly advice standpoint, this guy was abysmal. He should have offered his daughter some parental wisdom, right? Told her to keep her chin up, stay strong for her mom. He didn't even tell her where to go to college, which I'm pretty sure is like your job when you're a dad, right? He didn't even tell her how to live her best life now, which, crazy. Instead, Dr. Kalanithi recognized his daughter as a clean slate. He told her she was loved beyond measure, that her very presence could provide him both rest and joy sated joy, that is satisfied joy. That her state of infancy meant that she lacked all the fortresses so many of us have. She could simply accept the clean slate that God had given her. 
She was enough, and he wanted her to remember that. I believe something about the few months that Paul Kalanithi shared with his daughter allowed him to see living and dying for what it really is, allowed him to see his own clean slate. As remarkable as Dr. Kalanithi's story is, there's a flood of these kind of stories in my news feed. And I'm so fascinated because many of my friends like on Facebook who wouldn't even call themselves religious are posting these stories about the dying and the dead. Culturally, we're kind of obsessed with it. And I'm not exactly sure why. Because death is a relief that we crave, maybe? Because we're envious of the dying's loss of self that happens. Because we want to dance like no one is looking, and so we need some macabre reminder for us to seize the day. So I'm sorry, but I've got to haul out Robert for our cape in from his grave one more time. Our preachers tell us the wrong story entirely, saying not a word about the dark side. No, that's too weak, about the dark center of the gospel. They can't bring themselves to come within a country mile of the horrendous truth that we are saved in our deaths and not by our efforts to lead a good life. So here's the good news, capital G, capital N. We are all dead, and by God's grace, our pain, sin, and horror has been pried from our cold, dead hands. And so that's how a clean slate goes. We do nothing, we lose everything, and thank God for that. And no, no matter how much we may deny, fight, and wrestle our way out of it, the truth remains that we have all been given a clean slate in Christ. That is the strange and wonderful thing about death. All of our beauty and charm has been taken. Our anger is not nearly as fun. Grudges, defense mechanisms, wit, and wisdom fall by the wayside. And in the end, we are left holding our clean slate, standing in the wake of God's grace. At least that is my prayer for myself and for all of you. Thank you.